Good morning. All right, open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 1. It says, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll look at several things uh, today in this, this passage. As we saw last week, the gospel is about not simply a plan of salvation, but the gospel is about Jesus. The beginning of the gospel, verse 1, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as I stressed last week, it's important to remind ourselves of this because it is easy for us to confuse the benefits of the gospel with the heart of the gospel. Or the results of the gospel, if you will, with the heart of the gospel. The, The heart of the gospel is that God wants to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, first and foremost, is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And as you read the epistles, what you see is that mainly in Paul, in Ephesians and Colossians, he begins to unfold the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And what we find out is that God's eternal plan was to bring all things together in, by, and through His Son, Jesus Christ. That His Son would be the head of all things. In other words, that God's goal in the gospel was that Jesus Christ would be glorified and through the glory of Jesus, the, the glory of the Father would be revealed. In other words, what God is really doing is revealing Himself. Because God's ultimate end in all that He does is first and foremost His own glory. Now, you you might be thinking, well, gee, that's self-centered. Well, it would be self-centered except God's perfect. Now, if if the end was my glory, that'd be a problem because I'm fallen and I'm sinful and I'm selfish. But God being perfect, His glory ultimately is our good. The two are not in contradiction to one another. When God is most glorified, man is most blessed. Understand that? When God is most glorified, man is most blessed. But the ultimate goal isn't the blessing of man. The ultimate goal is the glory of God. And so, it it, it may sound like a paradox, but but Scripture is full of, of these paradoxes where Jesus says, if you want to save your life, what do you do? Yeah, lose it. How does that work? It seems like a contradiction, but it's not. As we lose our lives, we find it. So, as we seek the glory of God first, we end up being blessed. 
when we seek our own blessing first, we don't get the blessing. It doesn't work that way. So the gospel is first and foremost about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And as we said last week, the name Jesus is his human name, if you will. But he is the Son of God. He's also divine. He is human and divine. And his human and divine nature were essential for the work that he was to do as the mediator of the new covenant. So the person of the gospel, the focus of the gospel, is our Lord Jesus Christ. All the blessings that accrue to us in the gospel, and they are many, the forgiveness of our sins, justification, the uh, sanctification, all of the things that God does for the believer, he does in and through Jesus Christ. In and through Jesus Christ. That's why, well, here, we're going to come back in a minute. Go to Ephesians 1 for a moment. In Ephesians 1, Paul highlights this. Where he says in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Where? In Christ. In the heavenlies, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that we have accrues to us in Christ. In other words, because we have a vital union with Jesus Christ. Just as he chose us in Christ, or in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved, in him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. He didn't consult anybody. He didn't consult you, didn't consult me, right? God's plan was something he devised, he determined on his own. He doesn't need our counsel, right? I know some of you, when you pray, you think you're telling God what to do. Doesn't doesn't work that way. His will, his counsel, his purpose. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. This was the eternal purpose. In Christ. Everything that we have is because of a vital union in Christ. In Jesus. So all the blessings that we receive in him... As we are blessed, he's glorified. And as he's glorified, we are blessed. We cannot and should not seek any blessing apart from him. All that God gives us, he gives us in his son, Jesus. And thus, we are blessed, but Jesus then is glorified in the process. Because it all comes from him. Go back to Mark 1 for a moment. So the, the person of the gospel is Jesus. The Christ, the son of God. But the second thing I want to point out is the promise of the gospel. Notice here in verse 2 of Mark, Mark says, And it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So here at the beginning of the gospel, and this is true of uh, Mark, it's true of Luke, um, it's also true of John in different places, what we see is that the gospel writers tie in the Old Testament with the new, with the coming of John and with the coming of Messiah. John is the link, if you will, the last of the Old Testament prophets who usher, helped usher in the new, if you will. He was the one. He was the link. So they're showing us this connection with the Old Covenant here. And what we need to understand, well, there's many things we could learn from this, but one thing I want to point out today is that the coming of Messiah was the fulfillment of many promises over a period of many, many years. Many, many years. We learn in, from Luke that at the time of Jesus' birth, there were, there were many who were still waiting and looking for the consolation of Israel. Waiting and looking for the consolation of Israel. Um, Mark quotes Malachi here. We're going to, let's go back, go back to Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Covenant. Right before Matthew. Malachi 3. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, when it's quoted in Mark, it says, he will prepare the way before you. And that's not a contradiction, because the me and the you are one, right? The me and the you are one. So Jehovah is speaking, he will prepare the way before me, and then when Jesus comes, who was God in the flesh, it's now you, because they're one. The two are one. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. This is the other text that is quoted by Mark. Isaiah 40. The start of verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill will be brought low. And crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love that. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen? So Mark quotes Malachi and Isaiah to um, tie the coming of both Jesus and really the forerunner of Jesus, who was John, to the old Testament promise. And when we go back and we look at the Old Testament, we see that there are numerous promises regarding Messiah. And I just want to look at a couple very briefly because I want to make, I want to make a point. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, if you want to turn there, we have what many consider to be the first promise of the gospel, the first promise of Messiah. You all know what happens in Genesis 3? This is the fall. 
And I don't mean autumn, it is the fall. So, after the fall, the Lord is uh, punishing Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, meaning her seed, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is considered by many to be the first hint at the gospel that there would be a defeat of the evil one through the seed of the woman. And it's significant that it's not this promise was given to Eve and not to Adam. Why? Because, as we know, when Jesus came, he came through a woman who was uh, whose conception was not from a man. Right? Because it was a divine, miraculous event. So it was through the woman that the fall occurred, but then it was through the woman that the Messiah came. I, lo- I, love, I love God's grace and mercy there, don't you? That even though the woman sinned first, he still used the woman to bring the Redeemer. So this promise was not a week before Jesus came. It was not a month before Jesus came. It wasn't a year before Jesus came. It wasn't a decade before Jesus came. It wasn't a century before Jesus came. Isn't this taking a long time? It wasn't a couple centuries. It wasn't even a thousand years. Now, we don't know exactly when the promise was. But we know it was a long, 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 one more time. It was way, shway, if you were at the wedding, you understand what I mean. Shway before Messiah came. Now, it would be wonderful if we took the time and walked through the Old Testament and saw all the Messianic promises. But we're not going to do that. But there are many. Many, many. And they are way before Messiah came. And so, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia, God's people, the faithful ones, waited and they looked. They waited and they looked. And even at the time that Messiah eventually came, there were those who were waiting and they were looking for the consolation of Israel. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of a long line of promises that God had made to individuals and to the nation of Israel. And the point that that I want us to understand this morning is that God fulfills His promises. God is faithful. He is faithful. And we see this um, in the coming of Messiah. 
We see it in, in God's work in the lives of his, his people in the Old Testament and even in the New. That if God speaks a word that is a promise, God will fulfill that word. Why? Because God does not lie. He does not lie. He cannot lie because of his nature. He will fulfill his promise. Um, let's look at Abraham for a second. Uh, are we in Genesis still? Yeah, go to Genesis 13. No, go to Genesis 12. Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, you know, imagine the Lord spoke to you when they say, um, you're going to win the lottery. Like, I don't play it. Well, you're going to win it anyway. And I'm going to give you $10 million. Like, praise the Lord. That's nothing compared to this. I mean, this promise to Abraham, I mean, through you, Every family on the earth will be blessed? Can you imagine God saying that to you? That you and your descendants will be a blessing to the entire world until time ends? And really even beyond? I mean, it is, it is staggering. Which is why in, in Romans, when Paul talks about the promises to Abraham, he says, Abraham didn't stagger at the promise in unbelief because... The promise was so overwhelming. I mean, if God said to me, you know, okay, I'll provide, you know, your meal tomorrow, I can believe that. Because the promise isn't that unbelievable. But this is a promise which is beyond, I mean, it's, it's beyond belief. It staggers the imagination. This guy's a, a no, he's a nomad. He's a nobody. And God shows up and gives him this promise. Blows the mind. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Notice this. Now, in a lot of, a lot of times in Scripture, um, when you're reading narrative, they don't give you these markers, like so-and-so was this old, or it was this year. You, you know. And so sometimes you can read a couple of verses, and you've jumped 100 years. You know what I'm saying? And other times you can read a long passage, and you've jumped a day. So you have to try to pay attention to any markers you get. Well, here's a marker. God shows up. He said to Abraham, speaks his promise. How old is Abraham? He's 75, right? So then Abraham obeys the Lord. Uh, he, uh, Lot, quote, backslides, as we're told. He delivers Lot. He meets Melchizedek. All this stuff goes on in his life. Then go to chapter um, 15. And then it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I have I go childless, and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Then they have this conversation, verse 6, And he believed Jehovah, and he accounted, to, accounted it, reckoned it to him, or accounted it to him for righteousness. Very important scripture, which is quoted in the New Testament several times, about Abraham's faith being the foundation of his justification before God. Okay, 
So, God reiterates the covenant to him. There's a ritual here, a covenant ritual where Abraham falls asleep, like many of you do when I'm preaching. He falls asleep. Uh, And this ritual is to demonstrate that that God is the author and the fulfiller of the the covenant. Okay? So God promises an heir, right? Verse 16. Uh, chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Now, we know as we read on in chapter 16. So, uh, Abraham does what his wife suggests. By the way, that was a mistake. Um, she conceives, she bears a child, Ishmael, the descendants of present-day Arabs. And, and the Arabs and the Jews have been fighting since this time. Since this time. It's been a, a rival of brothers, if you will. Okay. Go to verse 14. No, go to verse 16 of 16. So Abram was 86 years old when Hagar, Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So he's 85 when she says, hey, I don't have any kids. Um, let's get on with this. I'm old. So Abram's 75, right? And God promises that his seed that he doesn't have, by the way, will bless the world. Then 10 years later, no seed. Hmm. Okay, let's try it our way. Let us do it ourselves. Let us fulfill the promise ourselves. And so they do so, and we know it's been tragic ever since. So that's 10 years after the promise. Now notice chapter 17. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham or Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face. Uh, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Notice he did not say, I will make you a father of many nations. I have. It was already done. When God made the promise, when Abraham was 75, it was already done. Do you understand? Why was it done? It was done because God spoke it. And once God spoke the promise, it was done. Because God keeps his word. Ten years later, Abraham really failed. He tried to fulfill the promise in his power. It was a mistake. So now here he is, 99, and um, God comes to him again. So, essentially, what we learn from this text is that from the time of the original promise to the time of its fulfillment, it was 25 years. That's a long time, right? We, we, I could walk you through the life of David and see how from the time David was promised the throne to the time he sat on the throne, I think, was 16 years. We see the same thing Joseph. Joseph has a dream of ruling. Where does he end up? He ends up in a dungeon. He ends up in a prison. But eventually he ends up on the throne. Long span of years. We see this pattern all throughout Scripture. 
Why is it important for us? Because we live in the age of point and click. Do you understand? Some of us, some of us have about as much patience as a fruit fly. I mean, when Scripture talks about perseverance and patience, it doesn't mean you can sit through an hour-long sermon. It doesn't mean you can wait for God for a few weeks, or even maybe a few months, or maybe even a few years. We are so conditioned by our culture. I mean, the other day I bought a loaf of bread that was, you ever get those half-baked for things that then you throw them in the oven? No? Really good. You ever get them? Anybody ever get them? Okay. Yeah, loaf of bread, it's half-baked, so you throw it in the oven, it doesn't take long, right? So I got one, I read, read the label, eight, 8 to 13 minutes. So, okay, I put the timer on for like 12 minutes or whatever, threw it in the oven. It just seemed like such a long time to get that bread. I mean, it was 12 whole minutes before I could eat. You know what I mean? 12 whole minutes. Now, if it was the good old days, it would have taken all day to make the bread, right? But I had to wait 12 minutes. Can you believe that? You know, uh, you know, my son Ethan's into computers and design, you know, doing code and all that, right? Well, he told me one time about the fact that researchers are, <clears throat> you know how when you like go to a website or you're loading something, you have to wait, you know? And so sometimes you see a little bar go across your computer screen. Or maybe you see a circle, you know what I mean? So they actually, they're doing research to figure out what is the best way, while people are waiting, to make it seem like they're not waiting. (laughs) What's the best graphic? Is it a bar? Is it something blinking? Is it something going in a circle? Should the circle go backwards? Should it go back and forth? So they're, I mean, what's the best way so that we moderns don't have to feel like we're waiting when we're waiting 10 seconds. I mean, that's where we're at as a culture. I mean, and, and, and we can't think this doesn't affect us. Because I'm going to say this to you, that some of you used to pray for people that you don't pray for anymore. And it's because you didn't see an answer yet. So you stop praying. Stop praying. Well, God, you didn't do it right away. I guess you're not going to do it. I read a story about George Mueller. You know his story? He's famous for several things. One of the orphanages he built. But but I was reading uh, his biography the other day. And actually, this really surprised me. When he started his first orphanage, he said he wasn't starting it primarily because he cared about orphans, although he did care about orphans. He said he wanted to he wanted to do something to prove the to prove to God's people that God answers prayer. He wanted to show God's people that God is faithful. So he prayed. He said, "God, wh- wh- how can I do this?" And he felt like the Lord led him to start this orphanage. And, and what was unique about it is that he never asked for any money. So he starts a work which needed to be funded, and he prayed. 
And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And God answered his prayers. And God was faithful. And God demonstrated, not just to George Mueller and not just to his contemporaries, but really to the entire church, all of us who will bother to read the story, that those who depend on God will not be disappointed. You can clap, all of you. Those who depend on God will not be disappointed. Now, but but this is the caveat, and this is the lesson. This is the thing the Holy Spirit has impressed upon me this morning. Is that you have to persevere. Some of us are disappointed with God. And the reason is, He didn't answer right away. And because He didn't answer right away, we stopped asking. Because he didn't answer right away, we stopped believing. Well, I can tell you this. If you stop believing, God is not obligated. And so you may be disappointed, but it's not because of God. It's not because God has failed. The promises of God for his people in this day, in his word, are, are received, they are embraced, and they are experienced by a living faith. A living faith. And if we cease to believe, we cease to receive. Are you hearing me? If we, believing doesn't mean you believe for a week or even for a month. Believing means you believe until you receive it. That's what believing means. In George Mueller's case, there, there was a, there was a wonderful story about him praying for a, a, a friend. an acquaintance who was not saved. And he prayed for this gentleman every day for 40 years. Are you convicted yet? (laughs) Some of you have unsaved siblings. You have unsaved parents. You have unsaved children. Unsaved co-workers. Maybe you throw up a prayer every now and then. I don't know. Or maybe at one time you really did pray, but they didn't get saved. Oh, well, I guess God isn't going to answer that prayer. He prayed every day for 40 years. And then George Mueller died. Then the man got saved. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. The coming of Jesus that John spoke. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of the faithfulness of God. And the coming of Jesus in your life, if you will. The reality of Jesus in your life, if you will. Will be received Only by faith. Only by faith. Listen, if God could orchestrate all of the events that he did for all of those thousands of years from the time of the original promise to Eve to the the birth of Jesus, if, if God can do that, God can orchestrate your Little life 
to bring about His will for you. He can do that. He can do that. Do you believe that? He can do that. Now, you, you might... You might be saying, well, okay, I believe that, but um, things don't look right in my life. <laughs> it doesn't look like God's doing what I think God should be doing. Well, I, I can say a couple things. That The first one is you might be wrong in the sense that you might be thinking God should be doing something that, he, that he's not going to do. He's just never going to do that for you. And that's why you have to be careful of what you're believing. You can't believe what you want. You know what I'm saying? In spite of what some preachers are telling you. You can't just believe anything you want. Say, okay, because I'm believing God, now you you have to do it. You have to give me that new BMW. I'm asking for it. In other words, our faith has to be founded on Scripture. Founded on the promises of God in His Word. And there are many. There are many there for us to, to claim. To stand on, to pray, and ultimately to receive. But we have to make sure that we're standing on the word. When when uh, Mark tells us about John's coming, it says he says, as it is said in the prophets. In other words, as the scripture has said. So we talk about God's promises. We're talking about God's promises in his word. We have to stand on his word to receive his promises because they're in the word. We cannot choreograph uh, our life. We cannot write this script and say, God, I want my life to be like this. I want three kids. I want them all to be blonde. I want a big house. I want a nice car. I want this. And I'm going to believe you for that, God. That sounds silly, but people do that. In some ways, I think we all do that. To a degree, you know what I'm saying? When things aren't going our way, we're convinced it's not God's will. (laughs) But the thing we have to understand about God in His faithfulness is that so often when God is doing what what you're asking, when God is fulfilling His purpose for you, when God is being faithful to you, it appears just the opposite. Because God often works by contrary means. Joseph is the perfect example. And if we had time, we could we'd read, through, read through the book of Genesis this week. The, the, Joseph, the story of Joseph is astounding because he was given a promise of God through a dream that he was to, was to govern, he was to rule, and yet everything that happened in his life was contrary to the promise. Don't shout me down now. Okay, contrary to the promise. But the irony, the, the irony of the situation is that the things that were happening to Joseph that were contrary to the promise were actually fulfilling the promise. They only appeared to be contrary to the promise. Because Joseph could not see the future. Joseph could not see that when he was, when he was thrown into, uh, a pit when he was sold into slavery, the exact opposite of ruling, because the one who's ruling has the slaves under him, right? When he is sold into slavery, that is the very means God is using to put him on the throne. The exact opposite of the promise to human sight was the fulfillment of the promise in God's plan. 
You can clap, Melinda. I mean, are you hearing me? This is why we need faith. This is why we need perseverance. This is why we stand on the word. We do not stand on circumstances. God is faithful. He will fulfill his promise. Even when it appears he is not doing so, he is still faithful because our God does not change and our God does not lie. So when will he fulfill his promise for you? Well, I can tell you this. Scripture tells us that when Jesus came, after all of these years, there's a beautiful phrase that's used where Paul says that Jesus came in due time. In due time. God will fulfill his promises to you in due time. It's like, well, what time is it? I want to know exactly when that is. That, my friend, is in the mind of God. But in due time, if you will believe in due time, if you will persevere in due time. And when I say persevere, I don't mean a passive waiting. I mean a waiting that presses in to receive. Do you hear me? I mean a waiting that prays. In a waiting that believes, in a waiting that yearns, in a waiting that looks forward to the fulfillment. And God will honor that kind of waiting. He will honor that faith. And in due time, you will receive. God is good, amen? I had more to say, but uh, I think our time's up for now. Let's stand together. Lord, I thank you that every word you have spoken is true. I thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void. That although all flesh is like grass, the word of the Lord abides forever. And I pray, Lord, that we, your people, would be a people of persevering faith, that we would be a people who truly do base our lives on your word and the promises of your word. We thank you, God, that you are so good. We thank you that you sent us your son, Jesus, who died for us, who was buried, who rose from the dead, who now is seated in glory. And Lord, we've seen you so faithful for so For so long, help us to walk in faith and thereby to honor you and to bring you glory. We pray in your name. Amen.